when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the rather empty Queen's speech and why the Tories' deal with the DUP has stalled. I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Picard, the FT's chief political correspondent, Vincent Boland, our Ireland correspondent, and political commentator, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. So the government stumbled back into action this week with the Queen's speech, which was a rather downbeat affair and devoid of content. Lots of the Conservatives' manifesto pledges were dropped. There was no sign of a vote on fox hunting, grammar schools, the so-called dementia tax, the pension triple lock, or even a state visit by Donald Trump. Instead, it was all about Brexit and the eight pieces of legislation that will be required to prepare an exit that is as smooth as possible in March 2019. But is this Parliament and Theresa May's government up to delivering it? So Jim Picard is a purveyor of many Queen's speeches over the years. This was not really one for the ages. It's a slightly stunted affair. It's also going across a two-year Parliament, which the government says is necessary to get through all the Brexit stuff. Well, I mean, let's not forget that there were eight very, very meaty Brexit bills in there, which would be enough to test the digestion of any legislative body on earth. And yes, when you look at the total bills of which there are about 27, there's some pretty thin gruel in there. There are lots of bills which I suspect no one will notice whether they get passed or not. Stuff about extending the remit of electric car plug-ins and ombudsmen here and there and stuff which is kind of fine. No one's going to argue about it very strongly, but all the controversial stuff from the manifesto thrown overboard like a hot air balloon that's in danger of hitting the rocks, and she's just want to achieve some form of flight, however desperately. Miranda, we knew this was coming because of the fact the government didn't get a majority, so all those controversial things I mentioned before, there was no way they were going to get through with such a lack of support in the Commons, but there was also the House of Lords factor as well. There were a lot of peers who would have certainly got stuck into the grammar schools and the social care reforms as well. But it sort of all has symbolised the weak position of Theresa May's government, which is probably a bit better than it was last week, but still not quite strong and stable. No, that's quite right. I can't believe you would even dare to use that phrase again, Seb, given it's his but no indeed not strong and stable anymore. There is something to be said for the approach that they took which is to essentially acknowledge the fact that the electorate had rejected the Conservative manifesto and therefore to not choose to have any more fights than were strictly necessary over the next few months. And certainly I think it's the case when we all look back on this extraordinary election campaign we've just been through that that week where the Conservative manifesto was released was the turning point when the country turned against giving her not just a landslide but a majority of any kind. So they were right to drop all those controversial measures. I mean, there are still some core Tory measures in there. They are going to go ahead, for example, with cutting corporation tax. And as Jim said, these Brexit bills are very meaty and there will be fights to come. And actually, 
Parliament and not just the House of Commons, but as you've rightly said, the Lords are really going to come into play over the next few months because they'll be trying to get measures through and there'll be attempts to frustrate them or build a kind of soft Brexit coalition across party lines. It's all going to get quite interesting and quite active inside the Palace of Westminster now. So one of the things we saw this week, Jim, was a gang of mostly Labour MPs from the centre-right of the Labour Party who have all said that the country must stay in the single market. A lot of figures like Chukwumana have all put their names into that hat. And they're obviously going to try and amend the Queen's speech. And this will be a bit problematic for Theresa May because there certainly isn't a majority in the House of Commons for a hard Brexit, as you might call it. The softer Brexit is where the consensus is. I don't think that's quite right. I think there probably is a majority for a relatively hard Brexit because you're forgetting that among the Labour ranks, and they now have 260 MPs, yes, 50 of them have formed this uh, Ramoni group, but that still leaves 210 who don't want to be associated with that group. And they range from people who want a hard Brexit because they're white working class voters want a hard Brexit to those who... You know, they may not be hardcore Eurosceptics, but they see which way the wind has been blowing so far in terms of public opinion. And I've been talking to some quite senior Labour people this morning about how this is all going to pan out. And there is a lot of cross-party conversation going on. You've got Labour backbenchers talking to Plaid Cymru and to the SNP and to the one Green MP and obviously also talking to some Remainer Tory MPs. But what is very, very clear is that for the next week, you're not going to see those Tory Remainers sticking their heads over the parapet. There's no way they're going to be voting against their own government's Queen's speech and thus risking a defeat for Theresa May. And I think generally they just kind of want to keep their heads down for a week or so. But once the Queen's speech is out of the way and some of that meaty Brexit legislation starts entering Parliament, and I understand the repeal bill is going to be one of the first things there, that's where we could see lots of mischief making by these combined forces. But the big question all along is whether the Labour front bench, people like Keir Starmer, the Shadow Brexit Secretary, are going to go along with this or whether they're going to be ultra cautious as they have been so far because of that question of if 52% of the public voted for Brexit and half of the rest of them just want the government to get on and do it. Does Labour want to be seen as wrecking the process? So yes, they'll want to score political points as we go along, and yes, they will seek defeats against Theresa May to weaken her, but they don't necessarily want to prompt the collapse of everything. I think that's very interesting, that reading of it, Jim, because it seems to me it's actually quite a fluid situation now. You know, we've gone from the first months of this year where the government was dead set on the most rigorous hard Brexit interpretation of the referendum. And here we are a year later today, on the 23rd of June. The mood music at least has changed, not least inside the cabinet. Because May is such a weakened figure now, you have the resurgence of Philip Hammond, who had been really told to be quiet completely during the election campaign, who's been very assertive over the last few days in talking about how he wants to craft a Brexit which limits the damage to the economy. And I think actually if you look at all the background economic data, which is getting increasingly gloomy and pessimistic for the British economy, and if you look at the mood music inside the Cabinet and inside Parliament, you can see a situation in which that consensus where people still talk about the 52% who voted leave, it's starts to look quite by the by as people start to change their opinion. That's not a dead cert in any way. It could flip back again, but it looks quite febrile mood on where the country sits now. I mean, I agree with you to some extent where 
you look at some of the most senior people in the cabinet and Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, Phil Hammond, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and now Damien Green, who is the de facto Deputy Prime Minister, who is very much a Remainer. And she's got all those people around her, like you say, wanting to soften the landing. And yet, even Philip Hammond, we were given this impression, maybe he's still trying to keep Britain in the customs union. And yet he came out on Sunday and he clarified that actually his position is the one that Theresa May set out at the beginning of the year, which is we are leaving the customs union, but we would like to replicate that relationship some way or another. So it depends on your definition of hard and soft Brexit. And yes, maybe things won't be quite as hard as they were. People were talking about a month ago. I think the idea of no deals is not going to be talked about again. I think that is the thing that's come off the table. But it doesn't mean that a hard Brexit is not roughly where we could still be heading for. I think that's true, and it's very interesting we're recording this on a year to the day of the referendum result, which obviously some people are celebrating as Independence Day, as they're calling it on Twitter. Others are bemoaning it's a year where actually nothing much has happened, Miranda. And it's really interesting how the debate has shifted, because when Theresa May became Prime Minister in July last year, it was very much all about her interpretation, which was this hard approach, which was clarified in her Lancaster House speech in January. That's all been flipped over, as you said, by the general election. And it's going to be interesting as the talks begin. They began in a fairly good light this week, although some people felt that the UK agreeing to the EU's timetable for the talks was actually a sign of the relative strength of our position. Others to say it was pragmatism and getting on with stuff. But Theresa May has finally talked about EU citizens' rights a year later, which some people say, well, it's about time. Others say, well, it was a necessary gap to get things prepared. And really, there's still so much disagreement over Brexit and what it's going to look like. And I think we sit here in another year's time and we'll still be in the midst of talks, hopefully getting somewhere. It'll be interesting to see whether there is actually any more national unity on the question, because there really isn't at the moment. No, indeed. I think it's a very confused picture here in the UK. And then on the other side of the channel, you've got this extraordinary coming together of the rest of the EU nations who've remained very unified in their approach to Brexit. And that's really quite a striking contrast. But I think also the Europeans, the negotiating team and then people like Guy Verhofstadt in the European Parliament, they have been keen to say that they are friendly towards the British nation, you know. And I think you're going to get a rhetorical battle now between the Brexiters in Britain who are trying to say at every opportunity that Europe wants to punish us. Europe wants to make an example of the UK, so we're going to get a bad deal, whatever. And then the Europeans starting to talk quite openly of if the UK were to have a second referendum and regret its decision to leave, that they would be open to hearing about a different set of intentions from the UK. So as I said, I think it is actually all quite fluid. And I understand what Jim's saying, his caution about the fundamentals not having changed that much. But this has never been done before, right? It's the first time any nation has tried Mm. to leave the EU. So we're kind of making history and we're kind of making legal precedent as well. I think there's a lot to play for, actually, if you're someone who thinks that Brexit is a mistake. Look at today's reactions from Europe. There's sort of concerted commentary from European leaders about our opening position not being good enough. You've got Donald Tusk saying the UK offers below our expectations. You've got Juncker saying it's a first step but not sufficient. And they do seem reasonably united at this point, whereas when you look at Theresa May's operation, I mean, of all the times for her to lose loads of key people, and when you go through the list, so Ben Gummer, who wrote the manifesto, he lost his seat. She's lost Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy, who were her co-chiefs of staff. They had to go after the election disaster. And then you've got John Godfrey, who's the head of policy in number 10, who's just walked out. His deputy walked out a week before. And you 
remember George Bridges, who some of our listeners won't have heard of, but he was a junior minister in the Department of Rex in the EU, but he was the guy in charge of the repeal bill legislation, a really formidable brain. And Very key figure. Heavily relied on to do this, and he's just walked out, his friends saying that it was all just too much, he couldn't really face it. And you, know, you look back a few months, and we had the FT magazine piece about the key negotiators on both sides, and thousands of words being written about Nick Timothy. But who's Nick Timothy now? He's toast. And so here is Theresa May, sort of shorn of loads of key people, facing very concerted opposite sides from Europe. And I think, Miranda, each week we're probably going to have a sort of Theresa May what section where we're looking at what the Prime Minister's position and how she's doing. And as we said before, she's a bit stronger than she was last week in the Commons this week. I think she did pretty well, actually, in the opening debate of the Queen's speech. And she's become a bit better in some of her media appearances, which were incredibly shaky last week. Because obviously, as well as the election, she had to deal with the Grenfell fire tragedy. But the talk still continues about who and what is going to replace her. And all the focus seems to be on the moment Again, David Davis and Boris Johnson, they've both been canvassing people apparently and they're both thinking about making a bid. But again, it's hard to see who's going to make the first move in a way. I suppose the key vote is going to be next week when the Queen's speech has to go through. And if that gets troublesome, if the government doesn't navigate it through, people will be saying, well, hang on a minute, you can't get this through. You haven't got a working government. And this comes on, of course, the DUP deal that still hasn't emerged yet. But at the same time... She's still got Gavin Williamson, her chief whip, who's a very big operator in Westminster, did a good job last time. If he's still there, and she's not entirely devoid of people at the moment. Well, both Boris and David Davis, there are as many downsides as upsides to those two candidates Mm. to replace her. And actually, I completely agree with you. I think over the last week, she started to look a little less shaky. She's still not the figure that she was before the election. But she seems to be sort of coping. She is, as Jim has quite rightly said, now completely isolated in terms of her own operation. Her own political operation has fallen apart. But it's an interesting contrast, isn't it, as we're talking about one year on from the referendum, you know, that David Cameron having really exploded the referendum into the middle of British politics, then kind of tumty-tummed and wandered off the stage. And May has at least stayed to face the music, and mm. she is actually doing that day and by deserves day. deserves credit for that. I think she genuinely does deserve credit for that, and actually you can see her gradually strengthening a bit more. So perhaps she will defy expectations and make it through the summer and at least get the negotiations onto some sort of firmer footing. I mean, we should all hope for that for the sake of the nation. And I think if there's one thing we've discovered this summer is that expectation management in politics is enormous and Mm. the main reason Theresa May looks like such a failure right now is because expectations were so high and we were all laughing at those opinion polls suggesting that she was 25 points ahead of the loser Jeremy Corbyn and therefore when she still beat Labour and Labour was nowhere near getting a majority it clearly looked like an epic defeat for her and a massive victory for Corbyn and I think now that she seems like a kind of political penny stock just her managing to function Just her getting the Queen's speech through, making some decent speeches, looking prime ministerial. The political weather can change quite quickly. One thing I want to talk about as well, which we haven't really got into, all those policies that were dumped in the Queen's speech. What's quite interesting is that one of the critiques of Theresa May is that she looks cold and the Conservatives don't seem to care about poor people or social mobility and all those things. And she had been seeking, ironically, to change that reputation by trying to do more to tackle things like 
the generation gap and the accumulation of wealth by older people and the difficulties of young people getting the housing ladder and that kind of thing. So some of the most controversial things in that Tory manifesto, whether it was taking away pension and benefits or means testing them, whether it was replacing the triple lock pension with a double lock pension, whether it was shaking up social care, a lot of that was about intergenerational fairness and the fact that it's been jettisoned and other controversial policies too means that ironically it's even harder for her to try and gain any kind of reputation for being a social reformer. I think that's very true and it was obviously a big part of the Mayite manifesto Miranda was to fix these burning injustices and they've clearly got it on the back burner and just finally the last point on top of what Jim was saying is that a lot of those policies have been jettisoned but a lot of her policies were also designed to save money so the pension triple lock for example that was a way of lessening the state pension bill. So the fact those policies aren't going to get through if we get a budget in this government which probably we won't see until the autumn. That budget's going to be very difficult to try and square all these things up combined with this call for ending austerity. I think that's absolutely right. And one other thing just on the ditch things in the Burning Injustice May manifesto is that it's being poured over with great interest by the Labour Party currently. I've been to countless meetings where they are looking at all these inequality issues which were to be tackled in the May manifesto, which is now bit in the dust for the Conservatives. But maybe we'll see some of these ideas resurface on the other side. Soon after Theresa May arrived back at Downing Street two weeks ago, she claimed her government would be back in government thanks to her friends in the Democratic Unionist Party. But no deal has emerged. Whatever happened to those friends and why hasn't a confidence and supply agreement between the Tories and the Northern Irish Party emerged? Vincent, it was a rather bizarre decision in my view of the Prime Minister to come out straight away and announce there was going to be a deal without consulting her party. And I'm sure there have been back channels open to the DUP as there have been for the past couple of years to talk about it. But it certainly seemed to preempt it in a way. And Arlene Foster's party has used this to their advantage based on the reports of how the talks are still ongoing. That's right. I think it was a miscalculation for the Conservative Party to come out so early on the day that the talks actually started to say, yes, a deal in principle has been agreed when, in fact, nothing of this kind had happened. And I think that the DUP is very, very conscious of not being railroaded for a start. It's a very small party compared to the Conservative Party, and I think that they were not prepared to give any commitments or to sign any documents or even, I think, to agree in principle until much further discussion had taken place, and that did not happen on the first day. So I think it was certainly a miscalculation by the Conservatives, which is why the talks are dragging on and inching towards some kind of resolution, but certainly we're nowhere near that yet. Because we kept hearing there would be an agreement in place by the beginning of this week, by the Queen's speech, by Mm. Thursday, and we've now reached Friday, there's still no agreement in place. And of course, one assumes there will be something by the Queen's speech vote next week, but there's no way the DUP would vote that down, because if they voted that down, that would be the end of this May government, and there'd probably be another election, and Jeremy Corbyn might win that. And they must be aware that Jeremy Corbyn is now a very likely candidate for Downing Street and the DUP would certainly not want to put him into power given his past association with figures in Sinn Féin. That's right. Keeping Jeremy Corbyn out of 10 Downing Street is an absolute question of principle and politics for the DUP. They will not, under any circumstances, help to create or collude in creating or even accidentally create any kind of conditions in which that will happen. So I think from that point of view, they're very committed to talking with the Tories and agreeing a deal. But again, I think they want to be seen to get the deal partly on their terms. And that is what has yet 
to be forthcoming from the talks. And I was speaking to people sort of around the party over the last few days, and the feeling was that we're not going to be railroaded. We have certain things that we want, at least we want some kind of commitment to in principle, and until we are absolutely clear that we get that commitment, then nothing will be agreed. And we've heard talks of some extraordinary figures. There was, I think it was Sky News reported, the DUP were asking for £2 billion of extra spending, which would have been £1 billion for the health service in Northern and another billion for public infrastructure. And it's a bit of a problem for the May government if these figures prove to be true. I've seen other reports today that it will be closer to £1.5 billion. And the problem with that is the rest of the UK is still going through an austere period. And if other parts of the country are seeing big cuts, Northern Ireland gets all this extra cash. That's certainly not going to help May with votes in Wales and Scotland and even in England. Absolutely. One of the advantages that the DUP has and that Northern Ireland has to a certain extent in the position in which the DUP find themselves is that for the last seven or eight years, while austerity has been imposed left, right and centre in Britain, Northern Ireland has to a large extent escaped the worst of the cuts because it is seen as a special case, and both the DUP and Sinn Féin are adamantly against austerity and welfare cuts and public spending cuts, because the Northern Ireland economy is very dependent on public spending. About 70% of Northern Ireland's GDP is created by public sector workers, public sector investment. So they really want to maintain that. And if you like, Northern Ireland is a perennial supplicant at the Treasury for more money. And this situation has created a new opportunity to ask for more money and to sort of bang the table until they get it. Whether it's two billion or one billion or something in between, that's clearly one of the things they're haggling over. But I think that there's no way that the Conservative Party can agree a deal in which Northern Ireland does not get more money. Absolutely. And the other question, of course, is how this relates to politics in Northern Ireland, because Sinn Féin have been saying this possibly contravenes the Good Friday Agreements, and I believe there's some sort of legal challenge going on towards that. Is there any basis for that case, you think? I think that there is not any legal basis. I'm not a legal expert, but I suspect that there is no real legal basis for a case like that. Bear in mind that the Supreme Court in London has already ruled that Brexit does not affect the devolved status of Northern Ireland or Scotland or Wales or any of those. So I think that challenging any agreement between the DUP and the Conservative Party on the basis of devolved institutions or on the basis of constitutionalism probably isn't really going to succeed. But there is definitely a political challenge ahead. One big question is whether Sinn Féin will accept the DUP agreement whatever it is with the Conservative Party. And if there is more money coming from Northern Ireland, how is it going to be spent? Will Sinn Féin accept the money? Will they say, thanks very much, this is great, we needed some of this? Or will they say, we're not accepting this, this is a unionist Tory stitch-up and not acceptable to nationalists? And I think that there's an enormous political uncertainty surrounding the agreement because we don't know what it is and it's what the political implications of it will be in Belfast and in the continuing talks between Sinn Féin and the DUP about recreating the executive in Belfast. So that was the next thing I was going to come on to that we've forgotten the backdrop before the general election was called that the latest assembly elections were stored and they hadn't got anywhere in talks and there was all this question about Arlene Foster's position would she stay, would she go and was that a barrier to uh, getting a new power sharing agreement but the DUP did pretty well in the general elections they've certainly got more fuel in their tank now is there any progress in terms of getting an administration back into storm on, and how does this affect it, do you think? In principle, I think there is a lot of consensus on both sides that an executive is necessary, that the Assembly needs to be back up and running, and that Northern Ireland needs to have some kind of self-government simply to maintain day-to-day spending, etc., etc., and administration, but also to have some kind of voice in the Brexit debate as 
the negotiations start in Brussels and to complement the very strong line that's being taken by the Dublin government, for example. Yesterday, the Irish Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney, said that the Irish government really wants to see a special status for Northern Ireland after Brexit. That adds a new dimension to what's happening Brexit-wise in Northern Ireland. So I think that the goalposts are shifting all the time in the negotiations at Stormont. I do think that both Sinn Féin and the DUP, in principle, are wedded to restoring the institutions. It's a question of how the deal between the DUP and the Tories will affect that and whether there will be enough agreement between the two of them once we know what the details of that agreement are that they can actually move forward from there. Bear in mind one thing, the talks have been going on at Stormont in parallel with the talks at Westminster between the DUP and the Tories. A lot of DUP time and effort is being dedicated to the talks in London rather than the talks in Belfast. So I think that whether the June 29th deadline for ending the talks at Stormont and recreating the institutions is met or not is another uncertainty. It's another factor that's clouding the whole process in Belfast just now. And finally, there's certainly a sense in Westminster that Theresa May might have underestimated both the DUP and the situation because the statement she gave in Downing Street was the same statement she was basically going to give if she'd won a thumping majority, but added in the line with our friends in the Democratic Unionist Party. And obviously the DUP are formidable negotiators and Arlene Foster who appeared at Downing Street and was photographed with Theresa May has clearly used the situation to her advantage but that sense the DUP has been briefing that they were being taken for granted it seems to be maybe a little bit of truth to that and they are certainly using it to their advantage. Yes, I think that there is a feeling that they have been taken for granted, or that certainly initially that they were taken for granted. And one thing to bear in mind, Seb, is that the DUP is negotiating with the Conservative and Unionist Party, the official title of the Tory party. The Unionist in that title refers to the old official Ulster Unionist Party, not to the DUP. So it's the old landowning ascendancy Unionist Party that ruled Northern Ireland for decades up until the 1970s, and whose star has been waning over the last 30 or 40 years, and who lost their two final MPs in the June 8th election. So when she came out and said, our friends and allies, she was talking about a totally different Unionist Party to the one that the Tories have always aligned themselves with. So I think that there was a degree of mutual misunderstanding there that has yet to be overcome. And most of the misunderstanding appears to have been on the Tory side. And that's really a bit surprising, given the long experience that they've had in dealing with Northern Ireland and with unionists in general. I think to misread the situation like that really doesn't augur very well for the way that the Tories today understand the problems in Northern Ireland. Indeed. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.